The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Well, Father, how are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Well, Father, great Good to be to here. See you. Yep, definitely. Father, we uh, continue to discuss the situation between uh, Russia and Ukraine. That's uh, something that uh, seems to be on the forefront of a lot of minds right now. We've re received a lot of questions about it. There's a lot um, that's being put out in the news right now. So, Father, do you have any update that you put, could uh, provide for us? There are many who are still worried that this could devolve into World War III. Um, we're seeing some of the consequences, I think, hitting a little closer to home with gas prices going up a lot um, around the, the whole nation, maybe around the whole world. But uh, do you have any kind of update on this situation that you could provide for us, Father, from a Catholic point of view? Well, there's an enormous amount of talk, an enormous amount of discussion about this conflict, as you, as you know very well, Tom. It's very hard to uh, separate the uh, voices of hysteria, speculation, um, those who are trying to spin this in their direction, right? And those who are, on the other hand, actually trying to understand it and speak about it with a certain amount of understanding. Um, uh, you recall that about uh, three months ago, maybe, maybe a little more, we were talking about the, uh, the danger of world leaders, national leaders, seeking a solution to domestic problems, that they would need uh, someone to blame for this, right? And uh, also, they, they would not only have to find a scapegoat, but a way to blame their, their, their failed domestic policies, um, uh, but they would also need some kind of leverage to silence opposition. Um, so that if, um, if someone spoke against them, they could actually charge them with some kind of crime, even. And there's nothing better, that, that nothing suits a, an unscrupulous national leader's need for it, better than war, to have a war. We talked about this about three or four months ago. I was talking about the danger of war, especially since uh, President Biden's um, polling numbers, survey numbers were going down and down, and as he was surrounding himself with, with disasters of his own making, um, and that uh, it would be very much, shall we say, it would be very useful to uh, someone in his position to have a, uh, uh, some kind of international conflict around us that would draw attention away from the failures and then also provide a very good excuse why those failures are happening. Uh, gas prices going up, uh, maybe food supplies uh, going down, uh, just the, the whole um, supply chain problem. Um, you know, people forget very easily uh, what, what, what really the, the problem was, if they ever knew what the problem was to begin with. 
And they're, they're more than willing to accept the excuse that, well, it's because of this conflict in the world. And, and, uh, but it's also a matter of um, trying to uh, rally everybody around the party, rally everybody around the, the leader, because um, he's taking the moral high ground, notice. Um, so the sad part of it is, though, that um, there are people who are very, actually suffering terribly right now because of this. I mean, let's face it, uh, Vladimir Putin is no saint. There are those who'd like to canonize him, I suppose. Um, but he, uh, you know, former head of the East German secret police, the Stasi, um, and um, no doubt, um, you know, very much still of that mindset. Uh, was he actually a communist? I don't know how many of them were really Marxists in, in ideology. Uh, I think they were all opportunists because they saw the opportunity for power and advancement. Uh, and I think he does certainly um, know how to gain power and hold power, uh, whether scrupulously or unscrupulously. Um, so um, in the, the same with uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, right? I mean... <laughs> He, he himself, you know, has a very checkered background. And uh, when he took power also in a landslide victory, you know, because he, he claimed that he was going to kind of free Ukraine from uh, Russian influence and uh, deal with the divisions at home, because much of the Ukrainian pop population is actually of Russian uh, origin. I mean, let's face it, Kiev was, uh, was the capital of Russia for a long time. And uh, it was only in 1991 that uh, Kiev actually received independence from the Soviet Union. Um, there was a certain coherence among the people before before that, but you, you, the Ukraine is actually a, a kind of um, a mixture, a, an ethnic mixture. Now you see what happened after World War One with the Treaty of Versailles when. Uh, the German-speaking peoples were basically divided up. <clears throat> that whole uh, vast areas of, of terrain populated by German, native German-speaking people were partitioned off and given to Czechoslovakia, or, you know, other parts, <laughs> other countries that were kind of artificially created or assigned territory. And um, Hitler's big uh, pitch to the, well, among the big pitches he was giving to the German people is that he was going to reunite the German people. That's folk. He was going to bring them together again, that this was this terrible injustice and, uh, and violence that was done to the Germanic peoples of the Austro-Hungarian Hungarian Empire. It would be uh, reversed by Hitler. He, he, invaded, uh, he invaded Austria, right, 38 invaded Czechoslovakia, and all in the name of reuniting the German-speaking people in these areas. Well, you have many native Russian people in the in the Ukraine, uh, especially in, in certain provinces of it. And uh, actually, they have suffered under the uh, Ukrainian uh, influence and been treated very badly, as though they were somehow the enemy within the Ukraine. These populations have suffered a lot of abuse. And, um, you know, Zelensky, again, he's no, he's no saint. He's no hero, that's for sure. Um, 
he um, he was actually very likely Soros's George Soros's choice to lead the Ukraine. And uh, when, I, when I call it the Ukraine, uh, that's actually pretty much out of out of vogue right now. It's simply Ukraine. Um, and um, the the fact is, both both Putin and Zelensky are in very thick with the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. And so uh, it's impossible to say that, uh, you know, you have the good guys against the bad guys here. Um, but, what, but what you have to say, I think, really, after listening to all the voices, the strident voices that are carrying on about this, is that this is being used, this very cynical, cynical thing, a uh, very cynical tactic uh, being used by the uh, globalists to advance their program at the expense of hundreds of thousands of lives of Ukrainians and, and actually um, Russians too, who are not only, you know, there on the ground uh, and also targeted by Ukrainians who are resisting fiercely. Um, um, in fact, one uh, Ukrainian, one, one Russian uh, military officer was captured and he, he came out publicly, whether he was forced to do this or not, I don't know. Uh, but he apologized to the Ukrainian people because he said what the Russian soldiers were told was uh, that Ukraine had been taken over by uh, pro-Nazi forces and that they must go on this mission into Ukraine to free Ukraine from uh, the Nazi forces. Well, in fact, in Ukraine, there are some very powerful Nazi influences. Uh, there were um, back, well, I mean, you know, talk about the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, a uh, woman um, uh, named uh, Christia, what, Freeland, I think her name is. Yeah. And her grandfather, her maternal grandfather was actually a, uh, a uh, rather powerful voice uh, for the Nazis. It was a Nazi propagandist, newspaper man, in Ukraine. So there, there is a lot of this um, uh, totalitarianist uh, uh, influence going on, and, uh, on on both sides of that border, unfortunately. And the poor Ukrainian people are kind of caught in the midst of this. Um, with regard to... Um, the, uh, the matter of World War III, though, um, I don't know that, uh, again, I suppose any, any such conflict could mushroom into that if people let it, right? I mean, after all, who would have predicted that the assassination of uh, Franz, uh, of the... Um, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, sorry, drawing a blank here again, but uh, the Archduke Ferdinand, who would have thought that his assassination on, in, the, in his carriage on the streets of Sarajevo would have, would have actually started World War I, um, or even that it would have been a world war. But um, that might not have been foreseeable. Maybe there were some who, who foresaw and hoped for it. But uh, the problem was that there were so many alliances. Um, you know, the 
the the Tsar and the Emperor, the Tsar of, of Russia and the Emperor in Germany and the and the King of England, the Royal House of England, were all related. They were all cousins. You know? So you know, for some reason, it, it adds a certain note of uh, extra tragedy to this. Uh, but um, the um, the idea that the Archduke Ferdinand would be assassinated, and it's a very curious story, a member of a secret society, the Black Hand, uh, took him down. And uh, the result was that the people began to cash in their alliances, and that brought the world into war. These entanglements, uh, precisely things that, uh, that George Washington warned us against, right? Um, well, um, unfortunately, uh, World War I was the result of not heeding that warning word. Um, but uh, so, I mean, you look at what's happening in Ukraine right now and you think, well, it could follow that same route. I'd be surprised if it did, though. Um, at Fatima, Our Lady did warn the children um, that they were there in the midst or toward the very end of World War One at the time, what we now call World War One. They didn't. They called it just the Great War at the time. And... Um, so they were coming to the close, although they couldn't have foreseen that, of uh, World War I. Our Lady did let them know that. But Our Lady did say that uh, there would be a second war worse than the first in the reign of Pius XI. But Our Lady did not say anything about a third world war, uh, at least at Fatima. She did not speak in terms of a third world war. She talked about great suffering, she talks about na nations being annihilated uh, in the apparition of July in 1917, but we saw that happen after World War I with the Treaty of Versailles, as nations were basically, well, just you know, moved around basically like, like pieces on a checker or chessboard. And uh, we've seen the global map change dramatically, right, in the course of our time with World War II. So perhaps the annihilation of, of nations did not mean that every man, woman, and child in a nation would, would, have, would die, would die off. Um, there are those who are predicting that if uh, uh, this catastrophe in Ukraine degenerates into a third world war, uh, with nuclear weapons, perhaps as many as a billion people will die. And some would say, well, this, this can't be wished for by anybody. They would say, well, nobody in his right mind would, would actually favor this. So how could anybody push the button knowing that this would be the result? It's out of the question, right? But we do have to remember that the, the World Economic Forum has its own agenda. And um, part of that agenda was using this pandemic to further their purposes. But it didn't pan out. It didn't pan out the way they'd hoped. Um, they wanted to use this to ride this pandemic all the way, well, a long way, like a, like a surfer rides, a, rides a, a wave. Didn't carry them as far as they wanted to go. But they were predicting hundreds of thousands of deaths, perhaps millions of deaths due to this COVID-19. They didn't get that. Did they want that? Well, if you listen to uh, Bill Gates kind of chuckling at the, at the idea, 
of uh, thinning the world's population, you know, you get the idea that they wouldn't mind that. That would that would be uh, uh, very helpful to them. <clears throat> they they do not shrink at all from the idea of mass death. Actually, regard that as part of the program. <clears throat> and so, um, who's to say that, that a hand wouldn't reach for that red button and push it, thinking, "Well, here we can just get rid of a billion people." Um, that'll be a real step forward. Uh, there are people who actually think like that. And uh, the World Economic Forum might, might well um, see that as um, just kind of making up for the difference uh, in what they ho hoped for from the pandemic, but didn't get. I don't know. I don't know. It's all speculation. I, I acknowledge that. <clears throat> but uh, so those who say, well, uh, think of what a world, world war, a third world war would cost in terms of lo human life and suffering. And they think that uh, only a madman would, uh, would actually, you know, consent to that and, and precipitate that. And my answer is, well, there are plenty of madmen in the world who think they need to remake the world. And uh, they have plans for you and me and everyone in the world. Um, and uh, when they say by the year 2030, uh, 2030, uh, you will own nothing and you will be happy. They kind of leave out the part, you will own nothing because we will own everything. <laughs> and we will let you have anything only insofar as you uh, do what we say. You know, they kind of leave that out, uh, the parentheses there. Um, <clears throat> so they're, they're willing to go to any length, any extent, uh, uh, in order to achieve their goals and they would just consider the rest of us to be collateral damage. Um, so I wouldn't put it past them, but I, but I don't think the World Economic Forum people really want necessarily uh, a world that is a smoking ruin either. So maybe they would stop short of um, pushing the button if it, if it were to come to that. Uh, the last program we did, I talked about the um, the book by Monsignor Robert U. Benson, the, uh, the Lord of the World. If our people haven't read that, they might do well to read it. Um, it's an interesting novel. And uh, Robert U. Benson talks about the coming of the Antichrist and his role in bringing the world back from the brink of, of death, you know, bringing the world back uh, from the brink of destruction. This was published in 1907, so before the World War. And, um, and, and the scenario that he presents there is uh, of a world on the brink of world war in 1907. And uh, the Antichrist coming and saving the world from this, uh, this hyper-destructive, uh, this is, uh, war of unimaginable brutality, cruelty, uh, death and destruction. And he's hailed as the world's hero and sa the world's savior. And that might well be what uh, we're looking at here, forming... Uh, coming, coming at us out of the Ukraine right now. I don't know. Um, Our Lady did not, that to my knowledge, uh, speak of a third world war. Uh, but but she did predict um, was that the faith, the the faith itself, the Catholic faith, belief in our Lord Jesus Christ would be annihilated in nations entire nations of the world. Uh, hard to imagine, but that's what she predicted. That faith would completely disappear.
from uh, entire nations of the world. It reminds us of our Lord's words, asking the apostles rhetorically, when the Son of Man returns to judge the world, do you think he will find faith on earth? And the question is just left hanging there. And uh, that doesn't mean that faith will ever disappear from the face of the earth, obviously. Uh, Our Lord said, I'll be with you, the apostles, and uh, the faithful until the consummation of the world. So uh, Christ's promise cannot fail. He will always be with us. But when he says, do you think he'll find faith on the earth? It might mean, actually, that the faith will still exist, but it will be underground once again, because it will be so viciously persecuted. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know how that can be interpreted. In any case, I personally don't expect this to um, bring about World War III, but could it, from a human point of view? Yes. Do we need to pray? Yes. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? We need to pray very earnestly now, perhaps more earnestly than ever before. We have to ask Almighty God for that mercy. Mm-hmm. Father, um, specifically though, how should we react to this as, as Catholics? Of course, prayer, but what exactly should we be praying for? Because we, it seems uh, the kind of prevailing viewpoint um, is that, you know, this is evil Russia uh, is the aggressor here coming into Ukraine, and so we need to support Ukraine, we need to uh, donate funds to Ukraine, do everything we can to help the people there um, in the Ukraine. And uh, as traditional Catholics who believe the message of Our Lady at uh, at Fatima about Russia spreading her errors, um, we do, you know, believe that, and we do believe that Russia has a a very prominent role to play. So um, should we be praying for the, the defeat of Russia, or what specifically should we be praying for? Uh, we should be praying for the defeat of godlessness and the defeat of corruption. Um, you know, the, the um, Ukrainian society uh, does, you know, go in for the virtually, well, all of the vices and, and uh, immorality of our own. You know, it's, it's not as though, you, again, you know, you have a nation that is built upon faith, hope, and charity. I mean, you've got some really uh, uh, serious moral disorders, you know, that are sanctioned by the so-called government. Well, I mean, as soon as Zelensky got, got in power, he crushed the opposition as cr- brutally as any Soviet dictator did. Um, I mean, he's, he's very much of the same mold. Um, he and Putin could very easily change, change addresses, exchange addresses, and we'll have the same thing going on right now. Um, so to think that uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky is, is some kind of a, you know, hero, and Andreas Hofer, you know, of... Uh, uh, fighting against the in, invasion of of, um, of the French to save Austria, it, it's not it's not it's not the case. You know, he's he's not your it's not your tragic hero. He's not your heroic figure on the ramparts. You know, resisting the the evil Russian invaders. It's not that way. Um, in fact, the saddest part of the whole thing, I'm afraid, is. The role that the United States has played in setting this up, yeah. and that seems to be a, 
very well recognized thing that uh, although Joe Biden is uh, wanting to, you know, come out of this looking as though he's he's really some kind of hero, you know, rooting, cheering on the, the good guys, the Ukrainians again to fight and resist this uh, invading Russian army. The fact is that uh, there were so many signals and mixed signals sent to both the Ukrainians and the Russians, uh, threatening Russia with NATO at the doors. I mean, they are surrounded by um, a number of NATO nations, and they didn't want Ukraine to become one of them, okay? Um, I mean, Putin had already said numerous times over years, I will not stand for that, I will not tolerate that, any more than the United States would. I mean, after all, when the Cuban, when Soviet missiles were um, landed in Cuba and mounted uh, in Cuba, uh, just 90 miles off our shores, uh, this was an international crisis. They talked about Third World War because of that back in the 60s, right? Uh, Kennedy was president, and this was a major confrontation uh, under Khrushchev. So, you know, when that happened, um, uh, our entire country reacted in outrage and um, actually basically demanded those missiles be taken away. And we were willing to bring the world to the brink of war, even Third World War. Uh, over that, and here is uh, Putin, and again, you know, I, I certainly don't absolve him of anything. I can't anyway if I could. I wouldn't if I could, but unless he repented. But regardless, I mean, he's a strong man, and um, whether he's an ex-communist, I don't know, but one thing's for sure. Um, he's a very, very... Um, well, I, I consider him to be a rather unscrupulous individual who uh, tries to play the part of uh, the the hero or the superhero. But anyway, uh, as far as uh, uh, um, you know, um, the virtues, I don't know. I can't judge his soul. But in any case, the the problem is that uh, he's uh, he told the uh, the West multiple times that he wants Ukraine as kind of a buffer. He wanted it to be neutral. And the West would not leave it at that. They gave assurances. Ukraine gave assurances, too, uh, over the years. And um, that NATO would not, would not be positioning itself in Ukraine uh, along, the, along the Russian border and would not cost uh, Russia its access to the Black Sea. That's a very important part of uh, Russian economic life, really. And uh, Ukraine really constitutes the access to the Black Sea for Russia. And uh, if NATO uh, was welcomed in there, that would really be a strategic loss for Russia. Yeah. And, uh, but, but still, it, they were pushed, and they were pushed, and they were pushed, and uh, they were pushed not only by the Western nations, especially the United States of America um, and the democratic leadership here, but uh, the Ukraine itself uh, was almost uh, taunting. You know, it, it seemed almost very foolish playing a little game of, 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 I don't know, what would you call it? 
uh, gamesmanship with, with, with Russia, you know, daring them. And, and Putin kept saying, I will not tolerate this. I will not tolerate this. <laughs> and uh, finally, he, he acted. Um, uh, you know, I'm, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not justifying what he's doing or what they're doing on the ground in Ukraine. Because I, you know, I, I think they're all guilty parties. I mean, that's, I, I think they're in this situation right now because, well, ultimately, as Our Lady would say at Fatima, because of sin. But um, in, this, in, this, in this situation, it's hard to find anybody who is really innocent yeah. of playing political one-upmanship. And, um, you know, like kids used to say, double dog dare you, you know. This is what happens, and people suffer because these leaders um, are playing games. Yep. But I, I do believe that the entire game, that e even, even the kings and queens and bishops and knights on the board are just chess pieces who are being manipulated by their handlers. And ultimately, it is the movers and shakers of the world behind the scenes um, who have bought them who bought them off and are uh, basically uh, using them to maneuver the world, uh, uh, basically to recreate the world the way they want. Uh, it's, um, it's just really evil. Yep. yep. Well, Father, there's a lot more that could be said. Um, we'll definitely keep an eye on the situation and uh, You know, as, as far as there's a lot more that can be said, that's true, but I, we really need to say much of it to Almighty God. We need, really need to, for every word we say to each other about this, and we need to say a thousand words to God, a thousand words to Almighty God of repentance, right? Uh, of thanksgiving to God for putting up with and tolerating all of the evil that uh, we continue to... Uh, to uh, fling, fling in his in his fatherly face, you know, as it were, to uh, to to challenge the sovereignty of God, we need to re uh, repent of our sins and we need to change our lives. That's what Our Lady said at Fatima. This is all the consequences of sin. We need to pray as Our Lady asked the Rosary, and uh, wherever possible, we need to. Uh, you know, priests need to hold on to the traditional Catholic faith and practice it in the traditional Mass and traditional sacraments and just hold the traditional faith in its entirety and not deviate from it. You know that, huh? Amen. Uh, well, Father, if we could uh, do some emails. We have uh, quite a few emails in our mm -hmm. inbox. I wanted to uh, try and get through some of those in tonight's program and in our upcoming programs. Um, so there are some great questions um, one that we wanted to discuss tonight is something that's been asked by several several of our of our viewers. Um, they've asked about this this idea of green burial, so-called green mm. burial. Um, one of our viewers asked if this green burial is an option for Catholics. Um, we understand that the Novus Ordo Church is is pushing pushing this now, but Sphere says I understand that embalming began during the Civil War because of the long distances the soldiers' bodies had to travel to get them back to their families. And that is no longer an issue, but we continue on with embalming like it is the only way. So have any of the Society of St. Pius V priests had any experience with green burial? Could you recommend this for a traditional Catholic father? 
Well, I don't know if any Society of St. Pius III have had experience with green burials. I don't know that people listening would know what that is. Uh, essentially, what they're calling a green burial for some reason, and I suppose because maybe they want it to be like ecologically yeah. <laughs> sound or something like that, as though people who opt for a green burial can say, well, I'm, I'm, uh, my social conscience is at peace because I'm going green when I die. I don't know what their purpose in calling it green is. It simply means being buried basically really in a, the traditional fashion. I mean, you just think about how people used to be buried. They'd be buried in plain wooden caskets. They weren't embalmed. Um, they didn't go undergo any um, uh, chemical processes to preserve them, uh, to preserve the body. And um, so the, the casket made of wood would disintegrate the body with it and... Uh, the earth would reclaim both. <clears throat> um, it's interesting, I didn't know uh, any connection between the Civil War and embalming. I'd have to look into the history of embalming, I guess. <laughs> the idea that bodies would be shipped home from the Civil War, mm -hmm. uh, I, did, I did not know that. I wouldn't expect it. I would have thought they would have been buried on site. Um, um, I mean, you know, you think about the casualties in the Civil War. I mean, you had thousands and thousands of soldiers in the battlefield, corpses in the battlefield. Um, to think of them embalming and sending them home, uh, it must have been, if they did that with any, it must have been a very small fraction of them, I would think. So, uh, anyway, I'd, I'd just be very surprised about that, but I'd have to, I'll look into that connection and try to understand it. But, you know, you think about the Trappists uh, at Gethsemane. Uh, they would be buried in a simple simple casket, some very simple wooden casket. Uh, their bodies would simply be left uh, placed there in their habits and, and buried in the ground. Uh, a wooden cross marker, if that would be placed over their graves. And a very simple, well, I guess green burial uh, in retrospect, but this was standard operating procedure until quite recently, as our reader uh, indicates. So there's certainly nothing wrong with it, right? Um, sometimes it would be chosen, well, chosen as an alternative to go through the entire um, burial process of getting embalmed and getting, uh, you know, all made up. You know, sometimes you get the impression that the cosmetics, the cosmeticians and the hairdressers um, who uh, prepare the body for viewings, are, they have to be pretty good at what they do. Um, but that'll be the last trip to the hairdresser and the last trip to the uh, uh, beauty parlor, in a sense, for most of us, right? If we go the standard route today. Um, but I guess all of that is dispensed with in a green burial. Um, you know, the picking out of this fancy casket. Um, in fact, uh, the way things are going, we might have a shortage of those too pretty soon, so there might not be much choice left to go. But if it's an alternative to cremation, that would be ironic because it's simply returning to, a, to an actual normal burial as it, it was known for centuries and centuries um, uh, in the Catholic Church. Um, it was outside of the Catholic Church that often they would resort to cremation because of their just either lack of belief in their resurrection or their intention to 
basically annihilate the body uh, for the sake of, uh, and it's an argument against against the resurrection. Um, and there are those who favor cremation because it is basically a denial of the power of resurrection. Um, but in any case, uh, there are more and more of these green cemeteries around. I understand, uh, I was reading just earlier, um, started with one, I, I don't know, some years ago, and went up to about 300. And there, there are other hybrid cemeteries where they do have certain parts of the cemetery put aside for a natural burial. It's really basically a natural burial, I'd have to call it. In fact, um, I think somebody uh, wrote us from Michigan about that. And um, I actually checked out because they asked that I checked out online. I didn't check out. <laughs> I checked into it, let's put it that way. Um, because they were asking, is there any place to obtain a green burial in Michigan? And so I, uh, I checked into it, and uh, there are. There are places. Uh, one can type in, like, natural burial, I think, Michigan, and probably come up with uh, uh, contacts to call about that. And some of them are in Novus Ordo cemeteries. Um, they used to be consecrated ground. Now they've been largely defiled because they, they used to be reserved for those of the faith, true faith. But uh, now, I mean, I, I understand that one of the bishops in Cleveland, Ohio died and has, has two German shepherds or has two uh, Great Danes buried with him. So, um, you know, but they, they certainly don't think of hallowed ground or consecrated ground the same way <laughs> that uh, the church used to. <clears throat> but in any case, uh, so in answer to your question, there, there's nothing wrong with a green burial, if I understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. If it's by that, they simply mean a natural burial. Okay. And uh, without pumping the body full of preservatives. Yeah. And... Um, and uh, you know there there are some questions that would have to be asked if 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 uh, the especially the writer I mentioned from Michigan looked into it and had further questions they really ought to contact us and let us see what kind of literature they've got mm -hmm. and check out to make sure this is going to be done and it really is a natural burial yeah okay all right great thank you for that father um, another email I wanted to uh, read to you tonight. The viewer wrote in and said, I heard Father Ripperberger say when asked about the validity of the new Mass that there is doctrine that states the Church cannot have invalid liturgies and consecrations. Can you please state if this is true? Well, um, I tend to think that the writer might be oversimplifying what Father Ripperberger might have said. I, I wasn't there, so I don't know what Father Ripperberger said. <clears throat> but on the face of it, I, I just can't imagine Father Ripperberger just saying it that way, that there is doctrine that the Church cannot have invalid consecrations and invalid... What? Liturgies. Liturgies. Um, <clears throat> and invalid ordinations, too? No, just invalid oh, okay. liturgies and consecrations. Okay. <clears throat> because the Church has always known that... Uh, you know, insofar as, um, you know, you have the sacrament, for the consecration of the, of the body and blood of Christ at the Mass, that it's possible to have a, an invalid consecration. Either because the matter of the, the wheat bread 
and the grape wine were somehow adulterated, as unfortunately happens, um, or the priest uh, misspoke the words, or might have even uh, maliciously mangled the words. I mean, that would make the, um, you know, if it changed, substantially changed the words of consecration, it would render it invalid. And that can happen, and the Church knows that. In fact, I mean, if you, if you open the, the old missiles, <clears throat> the pre-Novus uh, Ordo missiles, the front, of the, the front of the missile has a section called De Defectibus. And the De Defectibus is all about, well, what do you do if there's some defect in the way the Mass is offered? <clears throat> and it gives instructions on how to remedy the problem. So it's not right to say, well, there's a church doctrine saying that this can't happen. The fact is the church is well aware it can happen and doesn't want it to happen and explains how to remedy the problem. Um, um, the fact is the church does realize there can be invalid consecrations and there can, well, consecrations of bishops and there can be invalid consecrations at the Mass. Mm -hmm. And uh, the church has, throughout the centuries, been concerned about making sure that doesn't happen, but when it does happen due to some human failing, the church is concerned about correcting it, right? And so there have been cases when um, it's <clears throat> come to light that there was some defect in a ceremony, and um, uh, a bishop or a priest has, in fact, gone back and made the, the necessary corrections to guarantee the validity of it. Now, what I, what I think uh, the writer is talking about, though, is that it's, it's a matter of church doctrine that the church itself cannot produce and um, employ um, ceremonies that are, that are intrinsically invalid. That the church could not, um, shall we say, um, so alter existing ceremonies or create a new ceremony that would be invalid so that the Catholic people are duped into following, uh, you know, an invalid Mass that is the Mass itself, the ceremony itself is invalid, just because, not just because of some human failing of somebody doing it wrong, but because if they do the ceremony as it's, as it's composed, and not just proposed, but composed and imposed on them, that it would be invalid. So I think that's probably what Father Rippenberger said, is that the Catholic Church cannot do that, cannot impose invalid ceremonies um, of the sacraments, you know, of, of, well, of the Mass, uh, on the Catholic people. And that's exactly the point. The Catholic Church cannot do that. And so the question is, that that can that can actually give you two uh, lines of argument, so to speak. One can say, well, the Catholic Church cannot produce and impose on the faithful invalid rites of the sacraments, but the Catholic Church has produced and imposed the new order of Mass and the new rites of the sacraments. Therefore, the new rites of the sacraments and Mass cannot be invalid. Okay, that's how some people argue. And there are others who argue with no less intensity and right. Well, the Catholic Church cannot 
you know, create a, and, and impose invalid rites of the sacraments, mass. <clears throat> but the new rites, after Vatican II, are doubtfully valid. And then, you know, a logical consequence, uh, therefore, the, the authority that imposed this, you know, is doubtfully Catholic, you could say, okay? Now, this kind of loose, a loose syllogism here, but you get my point, see? There's those who actually look at these ceremonies and analyze them according to the Church's traditional judgment of her traditional sacramental theology and say, this is very dubious. The Church has warned us about this before. I mean, you know, you look at the New Mass, you look at the New Mass itself, and um, you, know, you, you juxtapose the, the offertory prayers. What, what is an offertory? What do the offertory prayers do at the Mass? They tell you what they're there to offer. They tell you the, the, the nature of the sacrifice they're offering. That's the point. The traditional words of the offertory are very, very clear that what we're offering here is the redemptive sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We're offering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ crucified. As we say, the Mass is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. The traditional offertory prayers make that very clear. The priest is holding up the host, looking up at the crucifix, and addressing Almighty God the Father, and say that he's offering this, this pure oblation, this oblation, it's a sacrifice, and we're offering it, <laughs> he's offering it for his sins, in reparation for his sins, the sins of all those gathered at the church, around him, at the altar, for all faithful Christians alive today and deceased. He's offering uh, in reparation for all the sins of these people, <clears throat> this sacrifice. And that sacrifice can only be one sacrifice. That's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ crucified. So there's no doubt about it from the traditional Mass that this is the sacrifice of Calvary we are offering here at this altar, not a table, but an altar. You go to the new Mass, it's, that's all gone. Um, you're switching back and forth between, you know, the body and blood, bread and wine. Um, you're calling it a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. You're not referring to it as a sacrifice of uh, reparation for sin. That's, that's gone. Um, <clears throat> that might be tucked in some prayers that are very changeable, that come and go week by week, but in the actual text, uh, standard text, it's, it's not there. It's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Well, that's a Protestant service. The church is actually, back in the Council of Trent said, if anyone says that the, the Mass is nothing but a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, anathema sit. He's actually uh, excluded from the church. Um, the New Mass doesn't say that the that it is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, but it says only that it is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, right? Um, and this change was made deliberately. So, you know, you have indications there that um, of what they, were, what they were getting at. They were trying to create an ecumenical liturgy that would be acceptable to those who believe the Catholic teaching and those who don't, who reject it. And, in fact, that's what they produced. That's what the new Mass is. Does it call into question the validity of uh, the, the new Mass? I think it does. I think that has to be studied very carefully. I think it calls that into question. It's, it's a doubtful thing. But, I mean, even beyond that, beyond the ceremony itself, if you are 
raising, uh, you know, a, a generation of clergy on a doubtful form, then you have to, uh, on a doubtful ceremony, then, then you have to raise the question about what their minds are, because they have to have the intention to, at least the intention to do what the church does. And um, if they have a contrary intention, because that's their training, uh, that in itself would render it invalid. Um, so there, there are multiple levels here. I mean, even the new right of ordination has been changed, and the question is, <clears throat> what does it signify anymore? You know, I mean, if they produce a new right of ordination to the priesthood, and they take the words out of uh, altogether of saying, "Receive the power to offer sacrifice for the living and the dead." That's the mass as a sacrifice of reparation. If they take that out, which they did, the question is, why did they t why did they eliminate that? What is the new theology behind this that necessitated them eliminating those words? If they take out, receive the power to forgive sins, which they did. Now, whether they put them back in or not, I, I don't know. But initially, they did. What, is, what does that tell you about their intention of producing this new right? And uh, what are you actually expressing here? What is the meaning of this, this, this priesthood? I mean, even the, the essential words for the ordaining of the priest... There's a, a, what looks like a very small grammatical change of changing the, an accusative case into a, an ablative case. And, you know, a grammarian would look at that and say, oh, well, you know, just kind of slipped a little down the page from the accusative, the ablative. Uh, it doesn't really change the meaning that much. It changes the meaning greatly because <clears throat> the way they've got it in the new order with the essential words for ordaining priests, it could be interpreted as like a, a, a Lutheran minister, <clears throat> a Protestant minister, who simply puts on the, the robes and wears the robes of a minister and then takes them off. And it's not something that goes right into his soul. But in the traditional Catholic teaching, the ordination of the priesthood imprints a character on the soul which is permanent, that forever, right? Uh, it'll still be there whether the priest goes to heaven or hell. It'll still be there. <clears throat> and there you have the, the word in with the accusative, which indicates placing this within him not just putting it over him, but actually in installing something within him as a person, you know, in his soul. And uh, that has been changed. So even subtle changes like that can have some very serious meanings. And the question is, why would they do that? That wasn't an accident. Uh, all of this it was done with very, very serious forethought, and many would say malice of forethought. <clears throat> so... Um, I think, uh, I don't know what Father Ripperberger thinks about um, the conclusion to the premise, whether he yeah. considers that to be the major premise or the minor premise, you know. And I'm not even sure what premise he, I mean, we're, we're listening to this good soul trying to relay his words to us and his thoughts to us. But I'd be interested in knowing what he thinks about this, if he, if he really sees uh, the problem with the new rights um, in light of the traditional teaching of the church. Uh, or he looked at them simply, well, regardless, um, they were given to us by the church, we just have to accept them no matter what, and we just have, have to, uh, you know, unquestioningly say, well, the church gave this to us, so they must be okay. Unfortunately, you have the two reactions of, of people who are, think that they're following the faithful path, be faithful to the church. But obviously, one of them is and one of them isn't. 
uh, being faithful to the church because either they, they are dubious and they didn't come from the church because they couldn't come from the church if they are in doubt. Um, or they came from the church and they can't be doubtful. But it can't be both ways. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, think I don't know, that, does that answer the question? I think so, Father, yes. Okay. yes. Um, Father, if I could, one more question. This could be the last one for tonight. Uh, if you were wrote in and asked if Father Jenkins endorses the Danny Thomas St. Jude Children's Hospital charity. I don't know that I can endorse anyone or anything. I, I, I think they do good work. Uh, as far as I know, I myself have been moved to contribute at times because, because I think they do good work. Um, and um, again, they don't take any payment from those who are in... It's basically a research hospital, too, right? The charity situation. So uh, I, I don't know that there is, they're tainted with anything immoral. I would hope not. I can't imagine that they have any connection with abortion or any other, um, uh, you know, sordid evil practice. If they do, I'd want to know about that. But insofar as all I know about them is that they... Uh, try to perform acts of corporal, well, not spiritual so much, but corporal works of mercy toward those in serious need. I think that would be worth supporting. Okay. Great. Father, anything else you'd like to add in closing? <clears throat> well, Tom, I mean, here we are. We've um, had the first Sunday in Lent, right? And uh, we are now um, launched from the dock on Lent. We are uh, undertaking penance, and those penances we'd have to offer to God are um, as needed as ever, as necessary as ever right now. There's something very humbling about uh, fasting. Uh, not only is it physically salutary, uh, actually it's good for us physically, but it is also humbling, it's humbling to the spirit to deny ourselves. And uh, people ask sometimes, well, Father, how do I know if I'm really fasting? Um, you know, everybody is different in, in terms of the calories needed during the day to do the work that they do and so on. And um, my answer is, well, you know, there's a standard formula, eat one standard meal, the main meal of the day. Here in America, it's the evening meal, supper, at which there can be meat, that one meal during the day, except on Fridays and, you know, uh, and Ash Wednesday, of course. But uh, and days are designated as total abstinence, but other days of partial abstinence, where they can take the meat at the one, and that is the main meal. And the other two meals that they would take, they're entitled to three meals, okay? And the other two, the breakfast and the lunch, added together cannot equal the quantity of food in the one main meal. Now, you know, some people um, try to guesstimate that in their fairly satisfied that they're doing a good job with that. Others are get really scrupulous about it and say, well, I better get out the scale and start weighing everything and make sure, you know, that if I eat somebody else's in the, at, at, for breakfast and somebody else's for lunch, I've got to add them together and make sure I eat more than that, for, you know, at dinner. And uh, they start trying to, uh, oh, I guess, get out the calculator and so on. But, you know, I think the, the main point is, the fasting, is that we're hungry. And if one goes through Lent and is not hungry, he's not fasting. 
So I think we have to eat uh, enough to keep going, to get uh, our jobs and our done and our responsibilities satisfied and maintain our health. Um, but, um, you know, some people say, well, you know, how, how much is that exactly? I don't know. It varies from individual to individual. You can't tell somebody, look, you're entitled to exactly 4.7 ounces of food, you know. Um, it doesn't work that way. But I would say, at least if you, if you, if you come to the time for the next meal and you are hungry, um, that, that, that at least gives you a fighting chance of, of actually being fasting, okay? And um, if you, you know, feel hungry an hour before it comes time for the next meal and you have to wait, Again, that's a rather humbling experience, and, you know, that's what fasting is all about. So we offer that to our Lord. There's nothing more powerful when added to prayer than sacrifice. And the church is, I'd say, one of the church's premier sacrifices is that fasting. If we can use that fast to give up something, um, and then use that uh, uh, whatever we've given up and kind of accrue that in some kind of family, let me save some money or something and put it to some charitable cause, so much the better. Uh, fasting unto itself, just making ourselves feel hungry and self-denial, it's worth it in its own right. But if somehow we can give up something, uh, somebody might give up coffee for Lent or give up smoking for Lent anyway, hopefully for life. <laughs> but... I mean, in, in the process of doing so, if they're denying them some treat or themselves some habit, and that saves some money, then it, it makes it doubly as good if they can take it and actually apply it to some charitable cause, uh, a, a corporal or spiritual work of mercy for another person. Um, all of this, of course, has to be done <clears throat> for one motive, because if this one motive is missing, uh, I'm becoming, I've become as a sounding brass for tinkling symbol, right? First Corinthians chapter 13, um, where we find the entire moral teaching of the Catholic Church summed up so beautifully. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 13, St. Paul, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, because he mentions that because he had been talking about the charism of speaking in tongues. Okay, he was talking to the, the Corinthians about this, speaking in tongues. They were very impressed with that. They were impressed with the gifts of prophecy. <clears throat> uh, they were impressed with the gift of healing. Of course, who wouldn't be impressed by these things? Actually, I mean, if I had these gifts, uh, I'd be very grateful to God at first, but I'd also, also be in danger of people thinking I was somebody special. And uh, that would be dangerous to me, because I might begin to believe them, right? <clears throat> there was a time when St. Paul healed somebody, and people wanted to take him... Make them, make them out to be gods, right? So look, they, they healed a sick person. I don't know who, I think they wanted to make Paul Apollo or someone like that, or Mercury, I forget which. Anyway, uh, but there are dangers in having these charisms. When the Holy Ghost gives these powers, it's only to very uh, humble souls who will use them for the glory of God and not for the glory of themselves. The devil will give you... Um, something that simulates these powers, if he knows he can use them to condemn your soul by filling you with pride and leading people astray. 
So we shouldn't be terribly surprised if we find people like Simon the Magician, Magus of old, and the uh, Acts of the Apostles, simulating these miracles and so on for the sake of personal gain, even today. False prophets, our Lord's called them, right? So St. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. But then he says, but I will show you the greater gifts, greater than prophecy, greater than uh, speaking in tongues, greater than healing the sick. And he goes into faith, hope, and charity. He says, these are the great gifts. These are the ones that actually save your soul. These are the ones that make your soul holy and pleasing to God. And he talks about that. The first thing he does is talk about the speaking in tongues. He said, even if I speak with the tongues of angels, if I can have conversations with angels, if I don't have charity, it, it's I've just become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, I'm, I'm just noise. It's just noise. And then he talks about faith. He says, if I should have prophecy and have all knowledge, and also have faith so that I can remove mountains. He says, if I ha- have not charity, it, it, I am nothing. I am nothing. <clears throat> Even if I have the faith necessary to move mountains... This is a very pointed answer of St. Paul thousands of years before Martin Luther, who says that faith alone saves. And then the next thing St. Paul says, and if I should distribute my body to be, uh, distribute all my goods to feed the poor and deliver my body to be burned as a martyr and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. It's worth nothing in the eyes of God. And so the one thing that makes anything worth anything at all in the eyes of God is charity. In other words, the love for God. If we do it out of love for God, that's what gives it all value. Without that, it's empty. It's nothing. We are doing it for some other love. We're doing it for some other person or some other cause, uh, either for our own pride or to impress others or whatever it may be. But uh, the only thing that can pl- place give any value to anything we do in terms of sanctifying grace and saving our souls is being motivated by love for God. So that's the thing we have to work on during this Lent, and that is purifying our motives and striving and and asking God for the grace to be able to overcome our native egoism and to really be able to do things, be motivated by the love for God as purely, as, as simply as we can, as purely, as, as simply as God can do for us, shall we say. So um, I've, I've suggested to people that they pray. They don't just say First Corinthians chapter 13 every day, but they actually pray it with the hope that in the course of time they know it by heart and they can actually put it into practice. That's the key. If there's anything that's going to... Um, give us power to proclaim the kingship of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in this world today, and uh, carry the day, it's going to be that. It's going to be the fact that we are motivated by a love for him. And uh, we have to be purely motivated by love for him in order to persevere in this in this message. We've got to give it to those around us, got to, especially to our members of our own families, We've got to give it to our friends and relatives. We've got to give it to our cities, states, nations, the whole world. We have to insist on that. I understand that that message actually was uh, 
very clearly stated by, uh, if I'm not mistaken, by a gentleman named Nick Fuentes at one of the recent political gatherings. He stood up in front of the whole crowd, thousands of people, and said, we are here to proclaim the kingship of Christ. That This is what we're here for. Right? I don't know uh, for sure that this is the right name. There are those who can verify that. And I don't really know what his religious affiliations or politics are, or what he means when he talks about Jesus Christ and the kingship of Christ. I'd like to think he means the same thing you do and I do, what the Catholic Church means. Uh, but I thought I was very impressed when I, when I heard that uh, <clears throat> one of the main speakers at such a uh, a recent convention spoke so boldly about the kingship of Christ. I'd like to know more about this. Perhaps we can uh, talk about this a little more okay. in the future. Okay. Sure. Well, Father, thank you for your time. Thank you as always. Appreciate you being here, and I know all of our viewers do as well. Well, thank you, Tom. <clears throat> I appreciate your uh, perseverance and patience. <laughs> yes, Father. Please pray for the ill, always. Pray for those who are sick and suffering right now. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.